Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Ephesians 5, verses, verses 1 through 20. Our context is this. In the last chapter, in the first part of the chapter, Paul was emphasizing very strongly the need for unity in the Ephesian church and churches. In the last part of chapter 4, he started talking about moral purity and walking in righteousness and so forth. He's going to continue his moral exhortations in verses 1 through 20. And the nice thing about moral exhortations, they're generally easy to understand, just hard to apply maybe sometimes, but easy to understand. But we'll, So we'll go through this relatively quickly. Starting in verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now that word imitators is good. We are actually supposed to imitate Christ. We're supposed to imitate Paul who imitates Christ. Notice verse 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. That means you imitate Christ. So we imitate Christ how? As he loved, we're supposed to love. We walk in love, verse 2, just as Christ also loved you. So just as Christ loved us, we're supposed to love other people. That's an imitation of Christ. Ephesians 4.32, in the last chapter, Paul said this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So just as God has forgiven, we're supposed to forgive because we imitate God. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So if we look at the Apostle Paul's life, imitate it. To the extent that he imitates Christ, you're doing a good thing. There's nothing wrong with imitating people who imitate Christ. We all know what the spiritual virtues are. Find people who are exhibiting those virtues and imitate them. Learn by imitation. Nothing wrong with that. Walking in love doesn't just happen automatically. You have to learn how to do it. Notice that Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Our Father has adopted us. That's why we are beloved children. Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He predestined us to adoptions as sons. So we are his beloved children. What do children do? It's natural for children to imitate their parents, as Adam Clark says. So let me summarize where Paul says in verse 2, walk in love. This is how the Ephesians were to imitate God. A, they were to imitate Christ by forgiving one another, as in Ephesians 4.32. They were to imitate Christ's love, as in Ephesians 5.2. They were to give themselves up for other people, even as Christ gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5, 2. So, forgive, love, and sacrifice. Forgive other people, love other people, and sacrifice for other people. That's how you imitate Christ. That's a high moral calling. We cannot imitate God in his omniscience or his omnipresence, as Gil says, but we can imitate him in love. That's a clever saying, I think, that Gil came up with. Paul says that Jesus was an offering and a sacrifice to God. Is there a difference between offering and sacrifice? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown think so. Here's what they say. Offering expresses generally his presenting himself to the Father as the representative undertaking the cause of the whole of our lost race, including his life of obedience. Well, life of obedience is not a bloody sacrifice, so there's your difference right there. An offering means I'm just offering my life up to you, including my, my acts of obedience, my, my act of obedience during my life. This offering does not exclude his offering of his body for us. It is usually an unbloody offering in the more limited sense. So it includes sacrifice. Offering is a broader term that includes sacrifice, but it includes other things too, including the act. Passive obedience means the suffering of Christ. That's the bloody sacrifice. But then active obedience is the offering of offering your life to God. Sacrifice refers to his death for us exclusively. 
Well, that's a fine theological distinction. I'm not sure it's worth making, to be honest with you. John Gill says sacrifice is that sacrificial act in which the blood of an animal was poured out as an atonement for sin. If you want to be very theologically precise, I guess you could make a distinction. So this offering of sacrifice to God, what Christ did for us on the cross, is a fragrant aroma. That's using Old Testament language. Because in the Old Testament, sacrifices are said to be a pleasing aroma, and Jesus' sacrifice is said by Paul here to be a pleasing aroma to God. Here's some examples. Genesis 8:21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. That's after the flood, I think. Exodus 29:18. You shall offer up and smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is, it is a soothing aroma. So we have soothing aroma, which is a pleasing aroma. It's the same thing. That's what sacrifices are. God actually liked the way those sacrifices smelled when they went up. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 4. Paul continues, But immorality, or any impurity, or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Immorality, that refers to sexual immorality, not just immorality in general, it's sexual immorality. NIV, in fact, translates it that way as sexual immorality. That would include both fornication and adultery, and I would say any other kind of sexual immorality that you can think of, bestiality, watching pornography, and so forth, homosexuality. Or any impurity, that's probably just a repetition of immorality, I would imagine. Adam Clark says that, the impurity may broaden the scope a bit. I don't think so. I think immorality basically covers it all, any kind of sexual immorality. But Clark says maybe you want to, he might have thrown impurity in there to recover homosexuality and bestiality. I don't know how Clark knows Paul's mind so well. But at any rate, we get the idea, don't even, that stuff shouldn't even be named among us. Somebody's, you mean is somebody's doing that? Uh-uh. And you think, well, how could that happen? Christians don't do that. Well, unfortunately, there are enough examples that I know of. I'm talking about right here in my home state. I remember some guy here was famous on a TV show as a comedian, got saved, came down and started talking about homosexuality in the, the leadership of the churches here in South Carolina. And I'm thinking, huh? No, can't be. Well, it turns out, yes, sir. One of them was caught by his wife getting on with his boyfriend in, his up, in her upstairs bedroom. And this is somebody that was, people I knew went to his church. So, yeah, it goes on. Shouldn't even be named, much less practiced, Paul says. Next thing Paul condemns is greed. Greed shouldn't even be named among you. It's interesting how Paul connects sexual immorality with greed. If you're thinking about people who lust after somebody else are basically greedy people. They want something that, doesn't belong, that does not belong to them. They don't want the commitment and sacrifice that, that is involved with marriage. They want to just have a good time. Here's some other scriptures where Paul connects the two, impurity and greediness. Ephesians 4.19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. See how you just tax that greediness on with impurity. You might not notice that. It's kind of interesting, is it not? Colossians 3.5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, that's the sexual stuff, and then, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So Paul Attacks, attaches greediness to idolatry. I've often said that if you can understand two things, how to deal with the opposite sex properly and how to deal with money, sex and money, sex and finance. You deal with those two things, 99% of your problems are solved. I remember I was talking to a young convert, a Chinese woman who was converted radically, radically converted. I mean, she was so screwed up beforehand, it was beyond belief. And she was talking about her former life and and how she had changed and all. And she said she used to lust after pretty boys, she called them. 
And I said, hmm, you're talking like a man now. So I wasn't sure whether she meant my lust, what I think about lust. And so I asked her one time later, I said, what did you mean by lust? Did you mean you wanted to have sex with these pretty boys? She said, absolutely. I said, well, darn. I guess I'm a little naive, even though I'm 68 years old. Uh, but that ain't right. And she says, I don't do that anymore. Paul goes on to condemn silly talk in verse 4. Well, what is silly talk? NIV translates it as foolish talk. Now, this doesn't refer to humor in general. Of course, Christians are not supposed to be dour-faced, stick-in-the-muds. I mean, you could, you know, a strict interpretation of silly talk could mean jokes or humor. No, obviously, that's not what it's talking about. It's referring to dirty jokes. Look at the context. It's all about... Let's see, impurity, immorality, filthiness, coarse jesting. That's dirty jokes. We're not supposed to do dirty jokes. Now, this is this is a tough one for me because every now and then these little kind of jokes that are on the line, we'll call them off-color. They're not gross, but they're sort of dirty. You know what I mean? Ooh, I'm, I'm a sucker for those jokes because they are funny. I mean, let's face it. A lot of them are very, very funny. And if you hear one of those jokes and are managed not to laugh, you have accomplished something because I have a hard time with it. But anyway, Paul says no dirty jokes, so don't do it. He also says uh, that foolish, uh, Adam Clark says that foolish talk and silly talk could refer to ridicule that exposes others to contempt, which is not jet coarse jesting or jokes. It's actually saying bad things about people. I'm not sure that Adam Clark doesn't sound like that's what it means to me. He's just talking like joke, coarse jesting. The context there is coarse jesting. Ha, 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 ha. The coarse is the adjective that is applicable here, coarse, as opposed to just, ha-ha, joke, nothing funny, but coarse. Again, if you get on the borderline, that's between you and God, doubtful things. Don't make people stumble. Paul says in verse 4, he uses the word rather. Rather giving of thanks. In other words, instead of taking up your time telling dirty jokes, how about thanking God for all the good stuff he's done for you? Big difference. Now, when he says, rather the giving of thanks rather than coarse jesting, in English we don't see anything there, but it's a play on words in Greeks. In Greece, Greek. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown. That word thanks is, quote, a happy play on sounds in Greek. Eucharistia, is, which is giving thanks, contrasted with eutropelia, which is jesting, refined jesting and subtle humor. Sometimes offend the tender feelings of grace. Giving of thanks gives that real cheerfulness of spirit to believers which the worldly try to get from jesting. Ephesians 5, verse... Let me let me back up a minute here. This thing about no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting. And I think it's the previous chapter. Paul talked about unwholesome word. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. There is a tendency amongst Christians today to try to show how liberated they are from legalism to cuss and think, ha-ha, ain't nothing about it. Well, I want to tell you something. It's gone too far. What's that pastor's name up in the Northwest? I think it's Mark Driscoll. I remember he made a name for himself for talking dirty in his sermons. I already mentioned this in my last audio. He said, well, it's just a, a cultural thing. That's the way people talk out there, and they don't think it's dirty in the Northwest. The, un, the pagan, unchurched Northwest. And he has so, sort of a point there because words lose, become strong or weak depending on the context. I remember one time my atheist father thought he was cool and so he used the word French word merit. He lived in France half the year and he used the French word merit for his password. He was telling me, <laughs> he was telling me, I don't mind using the password. It's S-H-I-T, he said the word. I don't mind using that. And I said, well, Dad, have it ever occurred to you that maybe that word doesn't translate that way to English? Maybe it just translates in the French ear to poop. 
And he started, stopped, and he started thinking. I knew I had him there, boy. He hadn't thought of that before. So words tra- go from language to language, generation to generation. They change their impact, their meaning. And so Mr. Driscoll is right about that. He said he wouldn't use that kind of language in a southern church. And as I said in my last audio, no, he wouldn't because he would be carried out horizontally, and it would take him a month, maybe two, to recover from his wounds, administered him in love by the elders of the church. If you're in doubt, as I said in the last audio, words which tend to grace, words which bring grace to the hearer. If you are in doubt about it, don't do it because you're going to make somebody stumble. Even if you're right in your own conscience about it, don't do it. After all, there are a lot of fine lines. I mean, zounds. Would you feel bad for somebody saying zounds? Well, that used to be God's wounds. Well, that's extremely offensive, but zounds is not. You know, things change as time goes on. Things lose their meaning. But at any rate, I remember one time I was at a theology night meeting at my local church. Brother brought this teaching on silly talk on what I'm talking about here, and he said, we ought to be careful about saying darn. Woo, a minced oath. And I remember another guy in the meeting who later became elder of the church. He, he just didn't handle that one too well. I can see why, because that's too strict. But again, if darn makes this brother unhappy, well, then we ought not to say darn in his present presence. Um, you know, another thing is if Christians go around breaking convention to show that they're free from stuffy fundamentalist legalistic traditions of the Christian church, then pretty soon their coarse talk is not funny anymore. It becomes commonplace. I remember one time when I was in college, I think it was, it might have been my hometown, but there's some, a brother, he was a little bit older, I think, I, did, I don't know who he, I don't remember who he was and I've lost contact with him, but he would come to our meetings and all of a sudden, just in the middle of nowhere, he'd say S-H-I-T, except he would shout it out as a word. And everybody said, oh, my gosh, you know, and everybody start laughing because, oh, we're so free in the Lord. And I'm thinking, this is disgusting, disgusting. Well, you know, you keep on doing that, and pretty soon it's not funny anymore. Because if you do it more and more, then there's no contrast between how the church, oh, that's what humor is, is the unexpected happening in an unexpected time and place. And if you're in the middle of a bunch of godly people and you hear that word, at first it might be funny. But after a while, it's not. I've only done it twice. I mean, sometimes I let out a bad word when, you know, for example, my computer. Sometimes it deserves to be cursed, and I have to curse my computer. I feel bad about it. My computer's going to hell for all the curses I put on it. It, it just is. It, it, it's hopeless. It's beyond redemption. But I know I shouldn't be doing that. But that's not the same thing as deliberately using coarse talk in order to, to make a point about how free you are. Now, I've done it twice. And I'm 68 years old, been saved for about 60 years, and I've used deliberately a bad word twice for humorous effect. Let me let me tell you the story. One time I was assistant principal at a Christian school, and a good friend of mine was the principal, and he caught this troublemaker named Tony cussing on the playground, and he told him, don't do that anymore. Well, he caught him again, and so he was really mad. He was fuming, fire coming out of his eyes, and he, he said, Dan, come here. We went back into his office. And he looked at me, he says, Tony has been cussing on the playground again. This is the third time. And I just looked at him, I said, damn. And <laughs> the principal, my friend, quit laugh, quit being angry, and he broke out laughing, and he's told that story at least a thousand times too many over the last 50 years, or 40 years, however long it's been. Now, another time, there was a, a sister of a friend of mine in the neighborhood, and she, um, the, he's now a pastor at a church, and she wanted some advice from me. I don't know why. She very rarely asked me for advice, you know. And uh, so she said, um, 
I've been having these bad dreams. I keep hearing these dirty words in my bad dreams. And I just can't stop it. And I just keep having these bad words. And I wake up the next day and I feel guilty. And I ask the Lord, forgive me. And then I go back and I I go to sleep again. I have another bad dream. And she says, I just don't know what to do. And I just looked at her and I said, damn. (laughs) So she was so shocked. And she's really uptight type of person. I mean, not uptight, but she's real, how can I say, tight. You know, she's, she's not... She wouldn't be around going around using those type of words, if you know what I mean. You know, and when I said that, I mean, everybody broke up laughing. She even laughed. And, of course, she's told that joke about 10 times over the last 20, 30, 40 years because she never forgot it. So, okay, I did that twice. But, you know, you really don't need to do that. I don't feel too guilty about doing that because that was a joke. But these people go around trying to, and my joke would no be, not be any good if Christians did that all the time. So, anyway, stop the cussing. Here's what I do. If I get mad, I say there's not one chance of a snowball in Gehenna. That's not really cussing, is it? Gehenna is the word for the word that Jesus used for hell. Or if I say that is that is the most damnable thing I've ever heard. For some reason, that's not cussing. I don't know why. I'm sure there's some linguistic or philosophical reason why it's not, but it's not. So I say that. That's how I get around it. Anyway, moving on. Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 7. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an adulterer has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, he mentions immoral Christians. Again, that's sexually immoral, impure, same thing. He says, don't do it because you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, is he talking about Christians who commit sexual immorality? No, he's not. He's talking about non-Christians. If if he meant any Christian who falls into sin is damned forever, then what about King David? I mean, you remember, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Is he, did he end up in hell? How about the Samaritan woman? Of course, she asked forgiveness for it. See, I mean, yeah, if you commit immorality, you can ask forgiveness for it. How about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? They're doomed because they're not going to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. No, this is assuming people that don't ask forgiveness for it. They're doomed. And he also means these who practice these things as a matter of natural course to do it and don't think anything's wrong with it and do it again and again and again and enjoy it. They leap into sin and love it. They don't lapse into sin and loathe it. There is a difference. And he says, these type of people will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And isn't that interesting, the two words, the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity are linked together as the owners of the kingdom. That's a good verse to show the essential equality of the Father and the Son. The equality of their essential natures, not their not their persons, of course, because there's three persons, one God, one divine God, and three persons. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, the article the is applied to both words, the kingdom of Christ and God, one kingdom. Paul says, don't let these evil people that he's just mentioned, immoral people, deceive you with empty words. There are always people who will tell you that sin has no consequence. Oh, you can sin. It's fun, man. It's not going to be any problem. Just take a little snort of this cocaine. Woo, doesn't that make you feel good? There won't be any consequences. Oh, why don't you go out and I got you. I got a hot date for you. Your wife won't mind. She won't catch you anyway. Yeah, right. With empty words. Verse 6, Adam Clark's got a good quote about empty words. He says that Paul's exhortations are especially applicable to Ephesus. Quote, that there was much need for such directions and cautions to the people of Ephesus has been often remarked. It appears from Athenaeus that these people were addicted to luxury, effeminacy, etc., etc. He observes that the Ephesians had dedicated temples to the prostitute Venus. 
He quotes from Demosthenes, that's the famous orator in Athens, We have whores for our pleasure, harlots for daily use, and wives for the procreation of legitimate children and for the faithful preservation of our property. Well, that's a high view of women, is it not? Through the whole of this 13th book of Athenaeus, I'm not sure who the ancient author is Athenaeus is, I'm not familiar with him yet. Through the whole of the 13th book of Athenaeus, the reader will see the most melancholy proofs of the most abominable practices among the Greeks and the high estimation in which public prostitutes were held. The greatest lawgivers and the wisest philosophers among the Greeks supported this system, both by their authority and example. Not to mention they love pederasty, homosexual shacking up with little kids, including Socrates. Is it not in reference to their teaching and laws that the apostle says, let no man deceive you with vain words? Yeah, we thought America was evil. Greece wasn't much better. He says... Do not become partakers with them. Let me read it exactly here. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 7. Now, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that doesn't mean Christians weren't to have normal social and business discourse with pagans. Of course you are. In another place, Paul says, if you don't, you'll have to go out of the world. I think he told that to the Corinthians. But what? But he says, don't be partakers. Partakers means communion. Don't have communion with them. A joint partake. In other words, don't partake of their sins. It doesn't mean don't partake of their business or their social discourse. It means their sins. We're not to, we are not to share in the pagan sinful lifestyle. The word is is soon metakos, soon metakos, a joint partaker. Ephesians 5:11, which is coming up shortly, Paul again says, "Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness." And that word is soon koinonia. Koinonia is the famous Greek word that means fellowship, partaking, communion, sharing. And this, the soon means together, don't have sharing with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We're supposed to have koinonia in the communion, in the Lord's Supper, but not in unfruitful deeds of darkness. We go to Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, Paul is here using the famous light metaphor... We know that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the light. The Gospel of John uses the light metaphor a lot. And we know that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I think that's in First John somewhere. Light is a very common metaphor. It's usually applied to God, but here it's applied to Christians. You are light in the Lord. You Ephesian Christians are light in the Lord. So that's how they imitate the Lord. They are light, just like he is. We're supposed to walk as children of light. A child takes on the characteristics of his parent. God is light. And so we take on the characteristics of our Father God. We're his adopted sons. He's light. We're light. Now when Paul says Christians, the Ephesian Christians are a fruit of the light, he's mixing his metaphors a little bit. But the meaning is clear. Light produces fruit when it shines on plants, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now the King James Version has spirit instead of light. For, you, for the fruit of the spirit consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That is a unfortunate translation the NIV has light there, not fruit of the Spirit, but fruit of the light. Why is the King James wrong? Well, let's read some old 19th century commentators like Clark. Instead of Spirit, Clark mentions all kinds of, of early manuscripts which have light instead of Spirit. ABD, EFG, Syriac, Coptic, Sahidic, Ethiopic, Armenian, Vulgate, and Atala. Together with several of the fathers have light which is supposed by most critics to be the true reading because there is no mention made of the Spirit in any part of the context. Context is light. 
plus all the, the, a lot of the early manuscripts have light. I don't know why the King James put spirit there. Here's another quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. He's trying to explain why the King James has fruit of the spirit instead of fruit of the light. That spirit is, quote, taken by transcribers from Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit verse. The true reading is that of the oldest manuscripts, the fruit of the light, which is in contrast with the unfruitful works of darkness, which is coming up in verse 11 in Ephesians 5. So the King James messed that translation up. They have a lot of good translations in a lot of cases, but not here. Now notice that Paul says that Christians are, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying. Making an effort. Notice that knowledge about how to be light in the Lord does not automatically fall from heaven in a revelation. You've got to learn it. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett Brown. As we prove a coin by the eye and the ear, and by using it, so by accurate and continued study, and above all by practiced and experimental trial, we may prove or test what is acceptable unto the Lord. You've got to live your Christianity out. You learn from what you suffered. Just like Jesus did, he learned from what he experienced. Likewise, we have got to learn from what we experienced. We pray all the way. We read the Bible all the way. We do all the fundamentals. But you've got to live your life, and everybody's life is very, very different with all of it, with very unique challenges and hurdles and barriers to overcome. And in the process of negotiating the obstacle course, which we call life, that's when you are transformed from glory to glory, and that's when you show your true redeemed character as a new creation, a new man or a new woman in Christ. Ephesians 5:11 through 14, Paul continues, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul continues with his light metaphor. He contrasts children of light, Christians, with others who who carry out unfruitful, de unfruitful deeds of darkness, which we're not supposed to participate in. Unfruitful. The deeds of darkness are unfruitful, but remember in verse 9, Paul says the, there's the fruit of the light, which is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Easy to understand. Easy admonition there. But notice, Paul says, don't only do the bad things, but expose them. And that's hard. That's really hard when you have to say, uh, ma'am, you ought not to be living with your boyfriend before you get married. That's hard. That's hard to do. Uh, maybe you ought to quit stealing money from the company. Maybe you better start quit sh shaving pennies off the accounts and letting them add up so that you can take a little bit of money home. Well, the corporation's big. They can stand it. Well, verse 12, Paul says, It is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Now, Paul's talking about exposing things even worse than that. And you know there's an awful cost, especially when there's institutional pride and prejudice and politics involved. And you expose things and you and you rattle the cages of those that have power in an organization, they will come down on you like a lead weight. But at any rate, that's what Paul says to do, expose the evil that's out there. That doesn't mean you go around on a crusade. It's so easy to point out evil. Evil's everywhere in the world. Uh, it's assuming that you're doing this in accordance with the Spirit, that you expose the particular evil that God wants you to expose. All things become visible when exposed by the light, and everything that becomes visible is light. So in other words, you turn on the light switch and darkness runs. It disappears. Darkness cannot ex exist with light. So if you live your life in the light as a God-fearing, pious, daily walking in the new creation, daily renewing your new man, walking in the uh, bearing fruit of the Spirit, what you're going to do is you're going to expose the darkness and darkness will run from you.
because darkness cannot stand light. So you don't have to go out going out of your way to expose darkness. Just live a Christian life and darkness will be exposed. Now notice Paul says in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That verse does not say don't have fellowship with the people who are doing the deeds, as John Gill points out. If you took it that way, evangelism would be impossible. You have to associate with people who are doing darkness. I mean, I have no qualms with people who go to places where prostitutes are to witness to the prostitutes as long as they don't hire the prostitutes. But if they go to them to witness to them, hey, no problem with that, going into bars and things, a lot of witnesses, people do that, nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, Christians have got to quit getting over this idea, we, oh, we can't get our dainty little hands dirty. No, you go out into the highways and byways to compel people to come into the kingdom, by golly, the highways and byways are full of lots of nasty stuff. But if you're going to evangelize, you're going to have to do it. But you're not supposed to participate in the deeds of darkness, not the people. But not, you're not supposed to participate with the people. That's not what the verse says. It says do not participate in the deeds of darkness. That's the works. Now notice that the works that are done by sinners, those are works. They work at it with their flesh. Works are always accomplished by people's flesh, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. But fruit is something which is produced by believers, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. And fruit grows naturally and organically through the Spirit. If you get closer and closer and closer to Jesus, it's just natural. You abide in the vine. You attach yourself to the vine through which the life of Christ flows, through which the Holy Spirit flows. That Holy Spirit life will then flow into you automatically. It can't help but do it. And then all of a sudden, you're going to be growing fruit, and you ain't going to be able to stop it. You're going to be so holy and righteous and good and long-suffering and loving and gentleness and, and gentle and kind. It'll just come naturally to you. But you work it up and try, I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to endure it. And you try to do it in your own flesh without the life of Christ, without the Holy Spirit, you're going to fail miserably. Sinners, they do their works naturally by working at, by working to do works. We do, we bear fruit naturally by growing the fruits. It is natural for us to expose the darkness. Just we walk around, we're light, the darkness disappears automatically. We don't have to think about it too much. Notice that Paul says that these Sinners do their deeds in secret. The things which are done by them in secret, we shouldn't, we should be ashamed to talk about. Most Christians do kind of, excuse me, most sinners do kind of hide what they do. I mean, you know, how many, how many homosexuals go out bragging about all the analinguist stuff, anal, analingual stuff they do? I use that word as a, as sort of a euphemism, so I don't have to talk about how disgusting it is. No, they not. You have to really dig deep, and most people don't know about it. No, no, mo, most, how many? What's that old country song? I'm living on Main Street and loving on, loving on back streets and living on Main. Yeah, you live on Main where everybody sees you, but then when you got your your, your adulterous girlfriend or boyfriend, you're on back streets where nobody can see you. Now you can say, well, that's just because we don't want society knows we're not actually ashamed of it. Well, if you weren't ashamed of it, you wouldn't be afraid of letting society look at you doing it. Most sinners are not proud of their sins. They justify their sins. They don't just say, I'm going to sin, and by golly, I like doing this. Nobody's going to get me. I mean, some people do do that, but most people just, they're ashamed of their sins. And thank God for it. When people start losing their shame, then we're really in trouble. But at any rate, most, a lot of sinners do their stuff in secret. Bank robbers usually don't get out in the open and say, we, we're going to rob a bank. Now, there's a strange phrase here, verse 14, for this reason, it says, what's the it that says this? The quotation is, a weak sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Well, it turns out that nobody really knows what it is. The NIV Study Bible says that the quotation may be a from a hymn used by early Christians. 
The King James translates, instead of it says, it says he says. And then, of course, you have some options. Maybe it's the man who is the light of the Lord says, arise and wake and shine. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Maybe it's the man who is the light of the Lord. That's John Gill's option. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul that says, arise and shine. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Maybe it's God that says that. Maybe it's the scripture that says that. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe going back and translating it like, translating it like most translations do, it says. It, John Gill says it's a writing now lost. John Gill suggests maybe it's an apocryphal book of Jeremiah. John Gill says maybe it's an unrecorded saying of Christ then floating around, all of which is to say nobody has the slightest idea where this quotation came from, where Paul got it. But at any rate, it fits with his theme here, which is, listen, you sleep in the dark. You are dead in a tomb in the dark. So get up from your sleep out of the dark and arise from the dead out of the dark. Get out of the darkness and Christ will shine on you. There's that incompatibility of darkness and light. We are light. Sinners' deeds are dark. So get out of the realm of sinners' deeds and let Christ shine his righteousness on you. It's very simple what he means here. I said that nobody knows where that comes from. Some people speculate that this saying, it says, rise from the arise sleeper and arise from the dead awake sleeper and arise from the dead and christ will shine on you some people say that's a loose quotation of isaiah 26 19 your dead will live their corpses will rise you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy for your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits or here's another possible place where it could be quoted from isaiah 61 through 2 arise shine for your light is come and the glory of the lord has risen upon you for behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Now Isaiah uses the light-dark metaphor. If Paul is quoting Isaiah here, it's a very, very loose quotation. Maybe that's what he was thinking of. Maybe it's just an illusion rather than a quotation. We go now to Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Well, Paul just finished contrasting light and dark, lightness for Christians, dark for non-Christians. Now he's going to contrast wise and unwise, wise for Christians and unwise for non-Christians. He says that Christians should make the most of their time, not be foolish. Uh, the King James says redeeming the time. As Adam Clark says, that has the, the idea of paying a part of a debt back in order to get more time to pay the full debt. And so... Working real hard to pay the debt down, I think that's sort of a stretch. Let's just say we make the most of the time. We use our time efficiently. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that evil things in the Christian's environment will cause much waste of time, making most of the time because the days are evil, and evil days will then put up roadblocks to your efficient use of time. It will deviate you from the path that Christ has called you to. Well, that could be, mean that. Here's another option. Make most of the time because the days are evil and evil might foreclose completely an opportunity for the gospel. I think that's what it means is there's a lot of opposition out there. When you've got an opportunity to preach the gospel, take it because it might not be there tomorrow. 17, so don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And, that, of course, that's the answer. When you, where do you witness and where do you evangelize? It's all according to the Lord's will. If we'll learn to do that. We will minister much, much more effectively, and that is something, unfortunately, that is honored in the breach 
A lot of people get their own ideas of how they're going to minister, and they don't listen to the Lord and let the Lord tell them where they're going to minister or how they're going to minister. Let's finish up this section, this audio, with verses 18, 19, and 20 of Ephesians 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So when Paul says do not get drunk with wine, that shows that the effects of the wine and the Holy Spirit can seem, can seem very similar. In both cases, in both instances, the drunkard is under the control of an outside power. Classic example of this is the Christians at Pentecost in Acts 2.15. We read this, For these men are not drunk, Peter says, as you suppose, as you Jews suppose, as you Sanhedrin guys suppose, they're not drunk, for it is only the third hour of the day. That was just after Pentecost. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and so they were drunk. I had that experience happen to me in northeastern China, right near where Confucius was born. Actually, not Confucius, but what was it? The early philosopher, Chinese philosopher, and I forgot his name, but I was in his hometown, and we were doing a seminar for a bunch of apostolic workers, they call them, work team workers, co-workers, and it was a little, it was a farm, it was kind of a rich farmer's house, so it was kind of a big room in the middle with a bunch of uh, workers, and these were rural Christians, sitting in that room on the little tiny benches. There must have been 50 or so of them in there, and they wanted to hear about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which I was not there to talk about. I was talking about baptism in water, actually. And they said, well, how about baptism in the Spirit? So I gave them a quick little talk on it, which was outside the original plan, original program, and the next thing I know, they were staggering around that room, praying, not in Cantonese, not in Mandarin, not in English, but in unknown glossolalia, unknown tongues, and I remember thinking they looked just like they're drunk, staggering around, bumping into each other, crying, hands up in the air. Some of them were wailing. Some of them were laughing. It was wild. It looked just like they were drunk. So I can understand what happened at Pentecost. Now, Paul says here to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm going to give you the standard interpretation of that word filled. I have no reason to doubt it. As the NIV Study Bible says, the Greek present tense is used to indicate that the filling of the Spirit is not a once-for-all experience. Repeatedly, as the occasion requires, the Spirit empowers for worship, service, and testimony. Of course, this is uh, this verse is constantly used against Pentecostals and Charismatics to say, no, there's not a one-time experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, because baptized in the Holy Spirit also has the term filling of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And so they try, and the people who anti-Charismatics try to to soften the uniqueness, or try to blunt or obscure the uniqueness of being filled with the Holy Spirit after you get born again, and you ask for it. Well, this is what I say about that. Just be, Even assuming that filling with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time experience, this should not negate the fact that there is a once-for-all, once one-time filling experience after conversion. I mean, look at the book of Acts. I can show you several examples in the book of Acts very easily. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 19. Here's what John Gill says. Some have been filled with them, I don't know what the them is, gifts of the Holy Spirit, maybe some have been filled with them in an extraordinary way as the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and others in an ordinary manner as common believers. Well, the fact that we are filled continuously after conversion, as the need requires, that doesn't, we don't say that that denigrates regeneration. Oh, oh, we don't say, oh, don't tell me you're filled with the Spirit because now you're saying I'm not saved. Don't tell me that I'm not that I'm filled with the Spirit because when you say that, that I need to be filled with the Spirit again for some special work of, of, of Christ, then that implies that I never had 
the filling of the Spirit when I was regenerated. Now, you never hear non-charismatics talk like that, but that's exactly what they say to charismatics. They're not being consistent. Why should you denigrate a subsequent to conversion baptism of the Holy Spirit by saying, well, this verse right here says you, you filled when you need it, so therefore it, you don't, it doesn't happen at Pentecost. Well, you don't say that about regeneration. You don't say, hey, or nobody says, hey, you're talking about filling. That means that uh, you're implying that I was not filled when I was regenerated, which is what, of course, non-charismatics believe. Even Campus Crusade for Christ, using that verse, taught a crisis experience. They used to, they call themselves crew now. I don't know why. Probably trying to be politically correct because crusade has has connotations of being anti-Muslim. But at any rate, they used to have this little blue booklet with a white dove on it, and they called it being filled with the Holy Spirit. I used that book. A guy from Hong Kong was asking about it, and I said, here, let's get pray that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, of course, he was filled with the Holy Spirit right there on the spot and spoke in tongues, which I thought was kind of ironic because Campus Crusade for Christ. When I was in college, put me on a blacklist, my roommate and me, on a blacklist because we were dangerous because we were talking about the Holy Spirit in a way that was not proper. Paul says here, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A lot of commentators try to make a difference between those three Greek words referring to that, and I'd be doggone if I could tell the difference. The NIV Study Bible says all three terms may refer to different kinds of psalms. Adam Clark says we can scarcely say what is the exact difference between these three expressions, and I agree with that. I can't say. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 20. In our next audio, and at the end of Ephesians 5, we're going to talk about the relationship of wives and husbands and how that relationship parallels the relationship between the church and Jesus. Very famous passage of Scripture. I actually broke off my discussion of in Ephesians 5 at verse 20, right in the middle of a sentence, because verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, submitting to one another, that kind of fits in with husbands and wives. So I decided to, even though it's in the middle of a sentence, to connect it up with the next verse, 22, wives submit to your husbands, as husbands the head of the wife, even as Christ the head of the church, and so forth. We'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one.